evening, I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. There's a difference between how we respond to a situation based on our level of expectation. Take, for example, a person who has very little growing up and uh, looks forward to luxury items opposed as opposed to a person who gets everything they want. Uh, the difference is that the person who looks forward to things and doesn't really have much growing up and, uh, and, and gets to enjoy these luxury items really does enjoy them and is thankful. The way Jesus said it was, the one who is forgiven of much will love much. He said which one would, would love more? The one who's been forgiven little, like a small amount of money, or one who's been given, forgiven a, a large amount of money. And I think the same thing is true when it comes to our understanding of spiritual things, our understanding of the, the privileges that we have as Christians. If you grew up um, with not very much and looking forward to a particular item, many times it, you go on for, for long periods of time, maybe months and years, looking forward to maybe for you as a BB gun or a Cabbage Patch Kid uh, maybe as an adult, it wasn't a job or a specific person to marry or national freedom. And during those years, you wondered if you, it would ever come in, uh, to fruition. You, you wondered what it would be like when you actually got to experience that thing you were looking forward to. You wondered how long the wait would be. You wondered what kind of joy you would experience. And, and when that finally came, you especially if, if the item actually had great value, uh, then, then you treasured that. You cared for it. You were filled with thanksgiving and joy. And you protected what you had and, and, um, and were grateful for it. And sometimes our salvation uh, can be more like we can treat it like we are the spoiled child. Like we've always had it. And what's the big deal about it? Why, why do we have to, to give so much effort to think about it? And, and it's really something that, that I've always had. Well, obviously we understand that we haven't always had it. And when we understand salvation rightly, we, we ought to respond with great thanksgiving, like the people who anticipated and, and waited for that. And I think that's what this end of the chapter is about, Luke 1, 39 to the end of the chapter. It's about expectations and great thanksgiving. When we see God's works for what they are, when we as Christians experience God's works and understand the significance of God's work and His works, then it results in an overflowing of praise. So I'm not going to read the whole text uh, right at the beginning. We will uh, go through it as we go. But let me just read verses 39 to 56 just to set uh, the context of the first story. It's really two stories here that we're going to look at. So chapter 1, beginning with, with verse 39. This is the Word of God. Now at this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. 
And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm and has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So we have two stories here, and two stories of God's works. And God's works in both of these stories result in God's praise, or praise to God. First, we see Mary's visit with Elizabeth, and as Elizabeth speaks to her, we we read about this uh, encounter in verses 39 to 45, and the result is that Mary responds with what I would call a hymn of praise. And then John is born in verses 57 through 66, and Zechariah is given his voice back. And the result is that Zechariah uh, responds with a hymn of praise as well. So we're going to look at the two accounts, the descriptions of God's works, and then we'll finish by looking at the two accounts of praise that are given to God. So first, a record of the works of God. A record of the works of God. The first record of God's works is seen here in this this uh, meeting between Mary and Elizabeth. Mary, you notice in verse 39, goes to visit Zechariah and Elizabeth in their home in Judah. Notice verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word, speaking to the angel. And the angel departed from her, verse 39, Now at this time, or as other translations, at this very moment, she gets up, she arose and went in a hurry to the hill country. As soon as she gets this promise from the angel that she will uh, have conceived in her a child who will be named Jesus, she gets up and, and goes to Elizabeth. Now, the reason that she goes to Elizabeth is because the angel had told her that just as there has been a baby conceived in your relative Elizabeth, so there will be a baby conceived in you. For Elizabeth, it would have been a a human impossibility because she had been barren all of her life. She was beyond the age of childbearing years. And um, and so it, it would have been a human possibility. But the angel says, a baby has already been conceived in her. And just as it was a human impossibility for that to happen, so you will have a baby conceived in you. And so Mary immediately leaves to go to see Elizabeth. And apparently Jesus is conceived within Mary between the time that uh, the angel spoke those words and the time that she arrives at Elizabeth's home. And the reason we know that is because when she gets there, John the Baptist in the womb leaps at the, at the, um, at the arrival of Mary and the baby Jesus. It is unclear where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived, but apparently, according to verse 39, it was in the hill country of the city of Judah. Remember, uh, Mary had been met by the angel in Nazareth, according to verse 26. So, if you were to look at your map in the back of your Bible, you would see that this is approximately 70 to 100 miles away. And remember, 
I said that the average age that a, a, a young lady in those days would be betrothed to be married, which Mary is, would be around the age of 13. So this is a young lady, probably still under her parents' care. She is visited by the angel and she gets up and goes this long distance and uh, likely on foot, probably over the course of several days, and arrives at Elizabeth's home. And when she arrives in verse 41, she's greeted by Elizabeth. But what we find here is that this is not really a meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. But really, it's a meeting between which two people? Notice verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. And then uh, verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting... This is Elizabeth speaking. When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. This is really not a meeting between Elizabeth and Mary. Really, it's a meeting between, amazingly, two uh, children that are within the wombs of these two ladies. And that is John and Jesus. And John leaps in the womb, which signifies that, that Christ has come, that Jesus has come. He has entered into their house. This is, as many uh, scholars suggest, this is John's first prophecy. And this is exactly what John will do 30 years later. Now, how can this be that a baby would leap in a womb and that, that we could say that it's somehow some sort of a prophecy? Well, we know that this is something supernatural because, look at verse 41 at the end, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Elizabeth is now going to speak and she's going to speak in a way where she is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's controlled by the Holy Spirit. And what that tells us, Luke is, is cluing us in here, that what she's about to say is from the Lord. She's not just uh, you know, over-sensationalizing this kick that she has. You know, so for any pregnant mothers that, that, that might be listening, you know, this, I had this really sensational kick, and it, maybe it's from the Lord. Okay? You don't have to, to guess about that. This is supernatural. Remember, even John the Baptist, while he's in the womb, will have the Holy Spirit in him. Okay? That, that he will guide John the Baptist even while in the womb. And so as she... She interprets what's going on, Elizabeth does. She says, he leaps, notice verse 44, at the end of the verse, he leaped for joy. Okay, The fact that a fetus would express joy is significant here. It tells us that, that something supernatural, supernatural is going on. This is a special administration of the Holy Spirit where John is giving a, an adult-like response to the arrival of the Christ. And, and uh, obviously he's arrived through um, the arrival of Mary. And so Elizabeth interprets what's going on in verses 42 and 43. And again, the end of verse 41 tells us that this is a proper interpretation because she is filled with the Spirit. Notice her humility here in verse 43. And I think this is significant as well. Verse 43, this is how she interprets... Actually, end of verse 42. Blessed are you, speaking to Mary, blessed are you among women, women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Elizabeth is calling Mary blessed. She is showing her humility. She's exalting Mary over herself. Now remember that Elizabeth is probably between the ages of 60 and 90 here. And Mary is probably a young teenager, 13 or 14 perhaps. 
And so the fact that Elizabeth is saying is, blessed are you among women. How is it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? Shows Elizabeth's uh, humility in this situation. In verse 45, she gives a pronouncement of a blessing. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She's commending Mary for her faith. Now, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to humanize Mary in the sense that we want to um, almost to the opposite extreme of what the Catholics do, right? They deify Mary. They, they make her to be some kind of a God-perfect woman because of this supposed immaculate conception that is she was perfect and so that's why Jesus was perfect. And so sometimes in we have this pendulum theology that is they've swung the pendulum way too far that way and so what we do is we tend to minimize all the things that she's done and point out all of her sin but what we should do is commend her for her faith. That that she is willingly letting God use her in verse 38. Right? She's saying, Behold the bondslave of the Lord, may it be to me according to your word, despite the reproach and the shame that I'm going to experience because I'm so young and not married, by the way, I'm willing to accept that reproach for you, God. She's willingly letting God use her. And secondly, her, her faith should be commended in that she immediately goes to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth uh, was the sign for her that God would keep His Word. Remember, the angel said to her, just as, look at verse 36, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who is called barren is now in her sixth month. Here's the reason, Mary, why you can be sure that a baby will be conceived in you. It's because your relative Elizabeth has conceived in her old age beyond her childbearing year years. So, we have the description, the account of God's works, verses 39-45, to 45, and now we have uh, the, the response to God's work, works, which is praise. And that's in verses 46-56. to 56, uh, Through 55, excuse me. Alright, so we're going to skip that for right now. We'll come back to that. Skip down to verse 56. And now we see the birth of John. Verses 56 to 66, the birth of John. And we see three significant things about the birth of John. First, that an old couple, uh, an old couple is able, able to have a child. An old couple is able to have a child, verses 56 to 58. Here in verse 56, it says that Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Apparently, Mary stays around for the final three months of her pregnancy and probably until baby John was born. And then uh, she heads back home. We know that she's here at the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy because of verse 26. Uh, because that's when the angel visited Mary in the sixth month. So she stays for the final three months and then heads back home. So one uh, thing we see here is that the the old this old couple has... has, uh, has um, conceived a child. Verse 57, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Remember, Elizabeth stayed in hiding for the first five months of her pregnancy. Then when she begins to show, uh, and, and clearly so, 
she starts to come out and, and allow people to see her. Well, now, at the birth of her son, people are rejoicing with her just as they did with Sarah. The second thing we see with regard to the birth of John is that the child is given an unusual name. Verses 59 to 63 an unusual name. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. I say it's an unusual name because in those days they would expect for a child to be named after a family member, particularly the father, a firstborn son. It would not be uncommon for the child to be named after his father. But, but obviously we know that this child is special, that he has already been given his name by God through the angel of God. This angel of God had come and prophesied the birth of John and said that you will name him John. And so when Elizabeth says to to her relatives, her friends, that his name were, were John, they thought she was crazy. There's no one, verse 61, there's no one among your relatives who called by that name. Why would you give such an unusual name? And, uh, and obviously, uh, Zechariah confirms that name through the writing on the tablet. At this point, he is still mute and likely deaf. This is significant because God is naming the child. God has something very important for John just as He has for Jesus. God has already appointed a name for him. And the third thing that we see with regard to the birth of John is that Zechariah receives his voice back. Verses 64-66 to And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in, the, in praise of God. Fear came on all those who living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Zechariah's last words before losing his voice were words of unbelief. In verse 18, his final words were, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How is it possible? How in the world is it going to happen for my wife to conceive? It does not make sense. Those were his last words. And now his first words after receiving his voice back are found in verses 67 through 80. And they are words of praise. But before we get there, um, let me just point out to you a great question with regard to the response of the people. When they find out about this birth and that he's named John, they ask, verse 66, a question that we ought to be asking about this same child. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child John turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. What's going to happen to this John? What's so special about him that that Zechariah would lose his voice for not trusting God and then now regain his voice, receive his voice back? That, that, That Zechariah would be approached by an angel? What... What's going to happen to this child? And this is an answer that we're not going to get uh, resolved until chapter 3. But before we get there, in chapter 2, we're going, uh, Luke is going to turn our attention to Jesus and His upbringing. Then we'll get back to John as he begins his public ministry uh, at the age of 30 in chapter 3. 
Well, before we get to the praise of God, which is a response to the works of God, let's look at verse 80, the final verse of the text. And the child continued to grow and to and to become strong in spirit, speaking of John, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Luke is, is basically telling us that there's going to be a brief pause here before we come back to John. But what you need to know about him is that he grew. He grew in stature, he grew strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts. Many uh, scholars believe that, that his parents, both of his parents, died while he was young. And so he grew up in the deserts, maybe maybe in, in the desert, maybe with other family members, or maybe he just learned to get along on his own. Whatever the case, his, his parents, remember, are old and would be on the doorstep of death. And so it, it is very likely that at a young age or maybe as a teenager that John's parents passed away. So we have two accounts of the clear works of God. God works in in uh, in this arrival of Christ through the womb of Mary, and and uh, and Elizabeth responds by by interpreting what's going on with this leaping in her womb. And then we have Zechariah receiving his voice back, the 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 baby John being born, and and the response to both of them is a hymn of praise. So let's look at these two hymns of praise first. A hymn of praise by Mary in verses 46 to 55. Mary praises God. We see three things in this song of praise from Mary. First, God exalts the humble, verses 46 to 51. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for He has had regard for the humble state of His bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. God exalts the humble. Notice the second part of verse 48 because it sounds as if Mary is being a little bit proud here. For behold, Mary is saying about herself, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. But Mary knows that people will, because she has given birth to the Lord, that people will adore her for ages because of God, of how God used her. But notice, in all of these descriptions of her in verses 46 to 51, she recognizes that God owes her nothing. She, she calls herself in verse 38, a bond slave of the Lord. In verse 46, my soul exalts the Lord. Verse 47, my spirit has rejoiced in God. Verse 48, He has regard for my humble estate. You see how she exalts God and... And, and humiliates herself. She recognizes that everything she has is from God. And that's why I say the first thing that we should learn in her hymn of praise is that God exalts the humble. The second thing we should learn is that God humbles the exalted. God humbles the exalted. Look at the second part of verse 51. He, God, has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So we have some negative comments about several different people groups. First, verse 51, the proud. Second, verse 52, the rulers. And then just a general statement here in verse 52, the exalted at the end of the verse. Uh, at the end of it, verse 53, the rich. So we have the proud, the rulers, and the rich. Now, if we just think about it in terms of worldly wisdom, we think 
the proud, the rulers and the rich, those are the ones that will be exalted. Those are the ones who have it all. And yet what God's saying is that He scatters the proud. He brings down the rulers. He sends the rich away empty-handed. And this tells us something important about what Luke is going to explain in this Gospel. And that is that God doesn't choose a person based on what society thinks is most important. God shows no favoritism to the rich and the powerful. In fact, He tends to show more favoritism toward those who are the opposite. Obviously, you got to keep that in perspective because God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show favoritism. But but he he tends to focus more on the on the poor, on the humble, and on the 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 um the ones who are being ruled rather than the rulers. Now just one thing to to keep in mind here is that God doesn't hate money or, you know, doesn't mean that we should be, try to be poor. It means that we should not be trusting in our wealth or in our position of power or our own arrogance, obviously, in order to be accepted by God. If we are doing those things, we are deceived. God exalts the humble. God humbles the exalted. Then thirdly, in Mary's song, we see that God is true to His promises. Verse 54, He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary recognizes that this birth of Jesus, this conception of Jesus, is no accident, but actually is the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise that God had made to Abraham, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And And they are blessed because of this person Jesus. Not because of the people group Israel necessarily, but because of the person Jesus. So the response to God's work in Mary's life is one of praise. The response to God's work in Zechariah's life is also one of praise. Verses 67 to 79. And there are several things we see here. First, thanksgiving for the Messiah. Now this is interesting because Zechariah has just had the great experience of having his own son, of being the father of his own son, and and something that would have been long awaited and probably for many years was frustrating. Remember, he had been praying for this for years. And God finally answers. Look at verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. So the reason I say this is interesting how he begins is because he doesn't begin by talking about his own son and and the mercy that God's shown to him through his own son. Instead, he praises God for this coming salvation through the person of Christ. And he spends the first part of his song uh, praising God for that. The second thing we see in Zechariah's praise to God is is the great deliverance that comes from God. Verse 71, this is connected to the, the, um, the coming of the Messiah. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath which He swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And so now he continues, the, the bulk of his praise is directed at the Messiah and away from his own son where we would expect it. 
The third thing that he praises God for is for what God is going to do through His Son John. Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. John here is called the prophet of the Most High by his Father. Turn back to verse 32 because we see what Jesus is called. Remember, John, of all men who were born of women, there is none that is greater than John, Luke 7.28. But obviously we know that that John John is not the Most High. He's simply the prophet of the Most High. Look at verse 32. Notice what Christ will be called. He will be great and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And I explained then when we looked at that, that is equivalent to the Most High. To say that He is the Son of God is to say that He is God, that He is equal with God. He takes on the characteristics of God. Zechariah exalted in, in John but he recognized that John was not greater. As John would say himself, he must increase and I must decrease. Zechariah knew that before John uh, was even a small child. The fourth thing that we see in Zechariah's praise to God is the salvation that comes from the Messiah. He, he turns back to the same thing that he started with. Verse 78, "...because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John pictures the coming of our Lord as a sunrise. So picture what it's like uh, when you are up before the sunrise and the horizon's not even visible. And, and, And Zechariah is saying that's what the world is like before Christ came. That it's dark, full of darkness and death. And then the sun starts to shed some of its light. That's what's happening with the arrival of Christ. A new time has dawned and this glorious day will now come. And this glorious day, as we know, will never end. It will be the day in which Christ forever reigns. Christ has come into the world to save sinners and and that action cannot be reversed. And Zechariah recognizes that and exalts God for it. All right, three points of application tonight. Number one, Christians respond to the work of God with praise. Christians respond to the work of God with praise. And I would suggest that, that we respond with hymns of praise. One of the reasons that we as a congregation love to sing is because we have seen the works of God clearly in our lives. We have heard God speak to us through His Word. We have experienced His mercy on us. We have known His love in times of trouble. And so when we think of those things, we sing. And that's why we have 150 psalms in the Old Testament that are recorded for us. Many of these psalms are psalms of praise. They praise God for His character, for His works, for His mighty acts. And Paul tells us in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 that those who are filled with the Spirit sing to one another. They sing to one another and they sing to God. And we love at this church to do that because it is a spiritually natural way to express our praise to God. And the beauty of the Psalms and the hymns that we sing is that they're written by Christians in our day and in in ages past. People who have experienced the love of God themselves and who have responded with praise. And these songwriters are gifted in expressing their sentiments about God in a way that that resonates with us. That's why 
the Psalms are some of the most helpful. Uh, uh, it, the Psalms are some of the most helpful pieces of Scripture in all the Bible, because we understand in some sense what they're going through. They're able to voice some of our feelings when we're going through times of trouble or when we're experiencing joy. That's that's what the great songs do, by the way. They're able to voice something that we have already been sensing or feeling in our hearts. And so the the natural response for a Christian when it comes to thinking about the works of God is to respond in praise. Number two, God is true to His Word. God is true to His Word. God's loyal love is seen here in in, um, faithfully following through on His promise to Israel. Mary said it in verse 55, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, uh, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Zechariah points to the same idea. Verse 69, And He has raised us up a horn of salvation in the house of David as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from old. God is true to His Word. He had promised that a Messiah would come, that the Messiah would come. And He follows through on that promise. And so just as God is true to His promise to Israel, that He is not going to go back on His Word, so we can be tr- we can be sure that God will show His loyal love to us and follow through on His Word to us as well. What are the promises that God has made to you? Is God faithful to follow through on those promises? Number three, God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. God owes us nothing. We owe God everything. The thought of our salvation should ring in our minds like a beautiful melody when we truly consider that that we merited no favor from God. When we think of the fact that there is nothing that we get, can give to God that isn't already owned by God. Paul said it this way, what do we have that we did not receive? And when we think of that, that all that we have, all of our resources, our finances, our abilities, our talents, our gifts, our acts of service all belong to God. And that what we give Him is really not something that we have received apart from Him. Then the only response we can have is to stand amazed before God. Even our service of God, all of our gifts to God, are like gifts in the hand of a father. It's like a small child who comes to his father. His father has all of these small coins in his hand. The child takes the coins out of his hand and then gives them back to his father. What value is that to his father? Right? What do we have that we did not receive? Why do we boast as if we have not received it? As if we earned it in some way. You see, God owes us nothing. Everything that we have comes from His hand and we give it back to Him. We take it from His hand and we turn it around and give it back to Him, our Daddy. And that is the life of a Christian. And when we think about that, we ought to respond with a heart of praise that God owes us nothing. And we owe God everything. And yet, in His love, He has chosen to give us all the great wealth of being a part of His family, treating us like we are His own. 
treating us like we are His natural children. Even though our relationship with Him was all established by Him, affected by Him, and none of it was a result of our own works. And so we can praise Him for that. When we think of God's works, we ought to respond in praising God. Let's pray. Father, like Mary and like Zechariah, we recognize this evening that we have nothing to give You. We have nothing to offer You. Like, like the song says, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. We, we come to You empty-handed and yet You have given us so much. You've given us so much wealth spiritually and physical wealth guaranteed in the next life. Lord, You have given us so many great and precious promises. You've given us the greatest gift, gift right now which is the down payment of eternal fellowship, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And Lord, we do not deserve uh, even the, the slightest amount of mercy that You showed to us. And that's why we treasure it so much. Lord, help us not to act like spoiled children and simply discard the things that You give to us and act as if we deserve them in some way. Help us not to live with a spiritual entitlement mentality that, that You have to respond in some way because we are so special. But help us to respond like those who have been forgiven much. Help us to understand our salvation more and recognize that we have been forgiven much. And as we do, that we, res- we would respond with great praise for You. Lord, You deserve all of our praise. May our lives lives be a reflection of that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.